This is the third time in like four weeks that I've been in Isaiah, and I, I'm not complaining. Uh, man, it's such a rich book. I, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say something about, in his childhood, one of the ministers accidentally said something about reading from the Gospel of Isaiah. And uh, it was really apropos. Um, it is such a rich book and such a just clear picture of Christ in Isaiah. And so I wouldn't mind just kind of curling up and staying in Isaiah forever. But um, we'll at least be here one more week this, this morning in, in chapter 11. And uh, let's pray. Father, I ask that we would never be a church that gives way to the temptation to peddle your word, as so many do, by polishing uh, the rough bits out and adding our own ornamentation and adornment and making it a product to be hawked for, for profit. But rather, I ask that by your sustaining spirit, the teaching and preaching that goes forward from this place would be your word in its unadulterated form. May we who teach do so as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, uh, speaking as in the sight of you and in, in Christ Jesus. And I ask that the fruit of the purity of the word preached would result in the spreading of the aroma of Christ from this place. And we trust that his aroma will have its effect on those it reaches, for death for those who are perishing, and life for those you are saving. Help us not to to fret or worry over when people recoil at your word and instead give us boldness uh, knowing that your word is having the effect which you would have intended. And uh, as I pray uh, or as I preach in in Christ this morning, um, so I pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. 
the season of Advent is, is about looking forward, um, and we kind of take some time to assume the position of the Old Testament saints who looked forward to Christ and we look forward to Christmas as we celebrate His incarnation. And of course, from our historical vantage point, we've seen the first Advent and we're waiting for the second Advent. And part of the Advent season really is looking forward to the second Advent. Um, From the vantage point of the Old Testament, that distinction between first and second advent wasn't quite as clear Uh, I think of like a binary star system two two stars rotating gravitationally around each other and and from here with the naked eye a binary system might look like a single star but with a telescope we can see that there's two stars and the Old Testament really looks at the advent of the Messiah from that naked eye perspective Um, And if you know what you're looking for, like we do from our perspective, you can see the hints of it, that there will be two. But from their perspective, really, the coming of the Messiah was this this one big event. Now, those saints um, to whom this promise of Isaiah 11 is written really had to weigh two questions uh, in light of kind of the moral decay of the Davidic kingdom and in light of the subsequent judgment on Israel. How is God going to fulfill his promises to his people? And the second question is, knowing something of the promise of the Messiah who would one day come, who, who is this Messiah? What does he look like? What does his reign look like? What will his kingdom look like? And when we look at this bit of prophecy, we're asking very similar questions, um, but we have a great deal more light than they did. It's apparent that we're somewhere in the middle of this prophecy of this text. The shoot of the stump of Jesse has sprung up. He's come forth. Jesus has come. But at the same time, I'm not going to allow Abel to play with venomous snakes. Not yet. Uh, The writer to the Hebrew alludes to this in chapter 2. He says that Jesus has become like us, like a man, to fulfill the promise that God puts all things under the subjection of the feet of human beings. Um, But yet, he says, at present we do not see everything under subjection to him. So this passage, like I said, gives us kind of this naked eye view of the advent of Christ, the big picture uh, of who he will be, where he comes from, how he will rule, and what his kingdom will ultimately look like. And this perspective will give us hope as we uh, await his second coming, as we look toward his second advent and the consummation of his kingdom. So the lineage of the Messiah is the first thing that he starts out with. The, the lineage and ancestry, um, which is integral to his role as the Messianic king. Um, I have across from my office in the ditch below, there's some trees. There's this big, I don't know if it's a cottonwood or poplar or something, but it must be 60 feet tall. And then there's another one that was, used to be about that size, I would wager, but it's a stump. And when we moved in, the stump had this branch growing off of it that was, I don't know, this tall. But now... <laughs> It's 20 feet tall. It's it's huge. And that's the picture that Isaiah paints for us here, is this stump with a shoot coming forth from the stump. And and when you cut down a stump, it looks dead, but there's still a lot of life in those roots. And if you don't take care of it, it's going to send up shoots, right? 
Um, when I was a kid, across from where the parsonage was, where we grew up, there's these trees that had they were they grow to be about this big around, and you it was fun because you could kind of climb, and there's lots of just vertical branches, so you just kind of climb between the branches, and they'd cut these things down once every five years, and they'd be back up in like two years. They were just some kind of a weed tree, but they were fun for kids. But there, there's still life in what is apparently dead in those stumps. The life remains. And that's the picture in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We have a parallelism here. A synonymous parallelism is is for emphasis. And he's emphasizing the point that there is remaining hope from Jesse. There is life in this stump of Jesse. Look to the line of Jesse to bear fruit. It will come. That that old stump will bear fruit. And the reality is that we're very often, as human beings, tempted by other trees. When we see the stump, we're very interested in, uh, in trees that are not stumps. Um, Abraham is a good example of this. He had a promise, but it's taking too long, so he turned to Hagar, right? The the apparent staleness of, of a simple, patient, and obedient life gives way to that exciting instant gratification of sin. We like other trees and other, other uh, things that appear to be fruit-bearing rather than stumps. But this, this is saying, it's emphatically saying, wait, uh, wait on the stump of Jesse. There is still something remaining, some life remaining. And of course, the outlook was very bleak for Israel. They were about to go into exile or, or Judah. And that, that's why they're reduced to hoping on a stump, is because they've sinned. They're, they're in judgment. And the kingdom has been reduced to, to nothing but a stump. It was at one point that, that big tree across from my office, the big 60-foot tree, and it's been taken down to nothing. So I think the call here is kind of, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, and do not judge the certainty of the fulfillment of God's promises based on appearances right now. Peter reminds us of this, um, that we're looking forward to the second coming in, in Second Peter, and we are to ignore the scoffers, those people who say, where is the promise of his coming? It, it looks like a stump. What are you waiting on? But appearances mean nothing for God, who, the God who built the world from nothing, who can raise up children of Abraham from stones. And in fact, God loves to work from humble means, from humble stumps. Mary is a great example of that in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. This humble, humble young girl. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. 
humble beginnings like, like Mary magnify the power of God and his ability to fulfill his promises. A, a dark backdrop displays uh, his promises in, in great light and stark uh, relief. Uh, which leads us kind of to this this person of Jesse, David's father. You know, in Revelation, uh, it, it calls Jesus the shoot of, of David. But here it's interesting, he calls him the shoot of Jesse. Why, why Jesse? Why not David? And there's at least three uh, possible reasons. Um, and the first is, is just that, that the Davidic kingdom had been cut so low to the ground that it's been reduced, reduced to this humble stump. David was this mighty royal king, and his father was humble and lowly. And that is the place from which this new shoot will will emerge. So again, here we see the humble beginnings of this kingdom. Um, The second reason, and take this with a grain of salt, I didn't see it too many places, but it, it makes some sense to me. But Jesse was at least one quarter Gentile. You remember the story of Ruth, who is the Moabitess, this Gentile woman who, who marries Boaz, and they have Obed, who has Jesse. So Jesse is one quarter Gentile. And this passage, to me, it, it, it's very universal. It's Gentile inclusive, if not perhaps even Gentile oriented in its tone. As there's a breadth of scope. In verses uh, 6 through 9, this messianic reign expands over the whole earth. In, in verse 9, he says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And in verse 10, this promise that, that, that the nations will come to see the root of Jesse, these nations. So that dr- Gentile drumbeat is a, is a constant one in the Old Testament that the Jews tend to want to ignore, but it's there throughout. Um, and it's this idea that, that the nations will be included, which is, is really great for us. <laughs> uh, Romans 15 actually quotes this passage from the Septuagint, Romans 15:8 through 12. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might, met, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. These are all Old Testament quotes. And let the peoples extol him. And and here's from Isaiah um, 11, verse 10. It's a little different because he's quoting from the Septuagint, but the idea is, is there. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So I think we have something here in this, this use of the language of Jesse in, in pointing us to the fact that the Gentiles will be included under the, the Messianic kingdom. The third reason uh, why he, he refers to Jesse, I think, rather than David, is that the Messiah we know descends from David. That's the promise in Second Samuel 7, that he, he takes up the, the throne of David. But he's more than just the son of David. He's also the antitype to King David. And in that sense, he's Jesse's son. Um, so David, he, he, Jesus is another David, the, the greater David, even as he is the second Adam. Um, David doesn't live up to the standard to which he is supposed to. Uh, 
Jesus really is the man after God's own heart. The Psalms, as we've learned from Michael, are, are a representation oftentimes of the ideal king of Israel or the ideal Israel. We see something of this in Acts 2 where Peter says that, that David said he would not see corruption, but he wasn't talking about himself. He was, he was a prophet and therefore he was talking about the Messiah. So Jesus is for us everything as a king that David could not be. In Psalm 18, we have these weird statements like that, that basically David's almost saying he's, he's blameless. He does. He says he's blameless. He says, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. If we've read First and Second Samuel, we know that's not true, at least uh, fully. David could really only say these things as the ideal representative of the nation. Um, and it would really ring hollow if there weren't an actual ideal representative to follow. Instead, David was adulterous and murderous. He, he took a census at the end of his life when he wasn't supposed to for vainglory. Um, and again, here he's looking to the fruit of other trees rather than the, the promise that he had been given. Uh, but Jesus was none of those things. He was perfect. Um, David did not extend the kingdom as far as he could have, and Solomon extended it farther. But as we read last week, the increase of the Messiah's government, will there will be no end. His, his reign, uh, reign will expand to the whole earth and even into the, the promised ho- homeland, the heavenly city. Also, David could not build the temple of the Lord. There was too much blood on his hands. Solomon did get to build it, but of course it was torn down um, by the Babylonians. And then they rebuilt it and it was torn down again by the Romans. But Jesus is the temple. He is God with us. He is in himself, Emmanuel. And they tore down the temple and in three days he built it back up again. So Jesus is the the second David, the, the ideal king of Israel who what was and is everything for us that David could never have been so this question of who is the messiah what is he like how, how will his reign look um, just just this first verse we could spend a whole season on this first verse but just his ancestry and lineage provide really an unfathomable insight to who this messiah is he's David's greater son while also being the greater David. His kingdom arises from the humblest of beginnings, and it is a fulfillment of a promise that can't be measured by appearances, and it becomes worldwide, it becomes inclusive even of us. So I think already here in verse 1, it kind of renders the command in Scripture to seek first the kingdom of God as almost redundant. What other kingdom is there? There's no other viable option, but we know from our own experience that the hearts of fallen men fabricate all manner of kingdoms around us as rivals. Um, So fortunately, we have more good things to say about Christ's kingdom, the good kingdom from verses 2 through 5. And we ask the question, what can be expected of this shoot of Jesse? How will this shoot of Jesse rule? What will his reign look like? Uh, how would you how would you fill in the rest of the the sentence? A good ruler is blank. 
wise, benevolent, strong, courageous, knowledgeable, powerful, many adjectives. Um, the, the Bible defines a good ruler in terms of his relationship to God. You know, God appoints the magistrate, and the magistrate is liable to do the things God has commissioned him to do. In the book of Kings, we read, either he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Isaiah 11 describes the reign of the Messiah in terms of his relationship to the Lord. Uh, First, the Lord anoints him with the Holy Spirit, and second, he fears the Lord in all that he does. In, In the Old Testament, people were anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill specific tasks and some men were kind of had a special anointing on their lives like Moses and and David Um, but people were anointed to fulfill specific tasks prophets priests kings Um, one of my favorites is is uh, Bezalel and Aholiab in in Exodus they're anointed says God filled them with the Spirit of God and with skill and intelligence and knowledgement with all craftsmanship so these men were given anointing as craftsmen to to build the tabernacle of the Lord. Jesus was anointed for his role in verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, These kind of echo those names from chapter 9 from last week, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Messiah will reign with wisdom, with a depth of understanding that surpasses normal human wisdom. One commentator says that these are uh, judicial and governmental attributes, so wisdom and understanding. These are things you have to have to govern and to judge properly. He will possess, he says, the spirit of counsel and might. Uh, These, again, are kind of governmental and military terms. Uh, He will be the expert in in government and military strategy. And he'll have the brilliance to to come up with a great plan and the power to to execute it. It says he'll be anointed with the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So his life will be informed. It will be animated by his knowledge of God. And he'll live in in a proper respect and awe of the God that he knows. The Hebrew word uh, Messiah is Messiah in English, uh, Christ or Christos in Greek uh, means anointed. And it it really has the idea of anointing something with oil, putting oil on something. So something like a shield for battle or an altar or a person is anointed with oil is set apart. It's consecrated when it's anointed. So Bezalel and Aholiab were set apart. They were consecrated for this task. Um, He says here that the Messianic king would be um, set apart by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit with these skills and attributes for his task. Um, So the ideal ruler is one that is set apart by the Lord and rules unto the Lord. Set apart by the Lord and rules unto the Lord. And we see the fruit of that in verses 3 through 5. Commentator uh, Alec Moitier, I don't know how to say his name, but um, he says that 
in 3 through 5, it shows how fully absorbed he is in exercising these divine gifts. And fear forms a domino link between verse 2 and verse 3. He goes from the fear of the Lord again into the fear of the Lord in verse 3. It says in verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So this king, this ruler, his frame of reference is toward God. He's more concerned with what God thinks than what he thinks or with what other people thinks. He executes justice and righteousness according really to, to the spirit and not according to the flesh. A wicked ruler governs by what he sees and what he hears. He calls him as he sees him, if you will. Whatever looks good, whatever sounds good to him. And the results, we see a picture of the results back in Isaiah chapter 1. This is really the reason for the predicament that they're in. Um, chapter 1, uh, 21 through 23. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Contrast those wicked rulers with what we read here in this in this um, passage, verses 4 and 5. The Messiah will reign in this way, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isn't that what we kind of long to see in our our rulers and our politicians? Justice and equity? But we never get it because why? They're sinners? We're not, but they're, they're sinners. We want true justice and, and righteousness and equity in the people who govern us, to govern exclusively with the mind toward what God cares about, with about His pleasure and His will. And Jesus does exactly that. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So Jesus really is, He meets that ideal of an ideal ruler, one who is appointed by the Lord and who governs in the fear of the Lord and unto the Lord. Now finally, what will His kingdom look like? What are the results? of his rule. <clears throat> we should expect results from a good ruler, I would think. Um, David and Solomon were, were pretty good rulers overall. Uh, particularly Solomon, we read about people coming to him for wisdom. And in 1 Kings uh, 4, 24 and 25, it describes his rule and reign, for, and, and really the results of his reign. For he had dominion over all the region of the west of the Euphrates to uh, Tifshah to Gaza over all the kings of the west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine 
and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon was a good ruler. He had good results. How will this messianic king measure up? And our text indicates that the result of the messianic reign is really nothing short of a restoration of Edenic peace uh, through new creation. The restoration of the, the peace of Eden in the new creation. Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion sh- and the fatted calf together. Um, this verb dwell, uh, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, is interesting. It's really the word sojourn. So literally, the, the wolf will sojourn with the lamb. The wolf will be in a position of, of humility, receiving the hospitality of the lamb. He'll be dependent on the lamb. And the text kind of escalates uh, poetically. The the wolf is probably a more potent predator than the wolf. He's going to take a nap with the easiest of prey, with with a baby goat. And the king of all the predators, the lion, will rest with the calf, the, the fatted calf. The two will coexist in harmony. So we see here this removal of this ancient enmity, this hostility between these these uh, breeds of animals, and it's really the beginning of a of a harmony and, and unexpected friendships. In verse seven, it continues to kind of escalate poetically, because here we had this this restoration of of relationships, but now he, it's even a change in nature. In verse seven. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So it's not just their relationship, but their very nature has changed, or even their digestive systems have changed. Lions are eating straw, bears are eating grass like cows. Um, Now, does this mean that all carnivorous feeding will be done away with in the new heavens and the new earth? Um, I don't know. Can you have the great banquet without uh, without turkey and steak? I, I don't know. But if so, I, I think God will provide steak trees and bacon bushes for our steak. <laughs> our um, really, the the new creation and this this restoration of of Edenic peace centers not around animals but around humanity. Um, and this is where we see kind of the reversal of the curse. Back in verse 6, it said that a little child would lead them. Um, he would lead the wolf, and the, shepherd, or the, the wolf and the leopard and the lion along with the normal herd animals. It's this idea of dominions being restored. Even a little human child will lead lions and leopards and wolves where before not even a full-grown man would lead those animals. And moreover here, notice that the sheep, the goat, the fattened calf are domesticated farm animals. And these other animals are the animals that would antagonize the farmers, afflict the shepherds and herdsmen. Um, And so we see, I think, here something of the thorns and thistles being removed from Adam's work. No more are they going to have to worry about the sheep being attacked by these animals. In verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The first message in the Advent series was Genesis 3.15, and we saw the animosity and enmity between humanity and serpents. Um, and now, in this new created order, 
the, the nursing child, like Abel, is playing with the snakes so over the cobra's hole. The, the idea of it just gives me chills. Um, but the, the word for playing here is to kind of amuse himself or to sport over the hole. And some have even said that he's um, teasing the venomous snake. He, he's totally relaxed with this serpent. And, and again, in parallel, the, the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den, another venomous snake. Um, Brian Borgman comments that there are, there's no fear on behalf of the child and there's no re- retaliation from the serpent toward the, t- toward the child. So really, peace is abounding in this kingdom um, and, the, and even in the fundamentally most animus relationship of men and serpents, there is peace. In the kingdom of the Messiah, the curse is turned on its head and Edenic peace is restored. Now, I'm of the opinion that this language is uh, mostly metaphorical. It's meant to tell us not so much about the state of the affairs of the animal kingdom in glory, but but, um, the state of of humanity and peace uh, of Christ's kingdom. Um, These animal relationships very well may look like this. I think they probably will look something like this. But that's really a tertiary point. I think the main point is that the reign of the Messiah will bring in an age of perfect peace in which the curse of sin has been completely removed and flipped on its head. Verse 9 plays heavily into my interpretation on this point. And verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, I don't think he's suggesting that wolves and lions kill prey and eat meat right now because they don't know the Lord. Uh Rather, I think that, that it's imagery. It's meant to show that the animals are meant to show that there's uh, peace among the nations. So the Assyrians and the Egyptians, the, the wolves and the leopards, will sojourn, will be dependent upon the sheep, the people of God. They'll come to us for hospitality and care. We, we see this in Haggai, at the end of Haggai, chapter 2, 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And a familiar New Testament parallel from Ephesians is one of the dividing wall being torn down in uh, Ephesians 2. He says in uh, 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have brought near, been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So no one will hurt the other one. No, no nation, no, no group will hurt the other in Zion, in the kingdom of the Lord, because we'll all know the Lord. The wolves and leopards have been brought into the fold and been made part of the fold. And they will know God as their covenant God and 
they will be his people. In verse 10, uh, this glorious promise is that we see it right here, that the nations will come to Israel and to, to the Messiah King, um, and that really we as Gentiles come to Christ in verse 10. Uh, and the, the big question that burns in our minds when we read prophecy like this is the question, when? Uh, here's a hint. In that day. <laughs> A bit vague, probably on purpose. But we live in the already, not yet. We don't know when that day will be. Um, that day, though, I think likely does refer to the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. That that final day when we are transitioned into glory. Um, though we though we have some of it already. Verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So here's an interesting change in title. It goes from shoot of Jesse to root of Jesse. The shoot springs out of the stump. The root is the source of life in the stump. So he who springs from Jesse is the life of Jesse, the life of the, that abides in the stump of the kingdom of Israel, is Christ. And he will be a beacon of hope. He'll be a, a light to the nations. And we will come to him. And we have come to him for his wisdom and counsel. And in him, he says, we find a glorious rest. So, what is the nature of the Messianic king and his kingdom? We find in Isaiah 11 that he is the shoot rising from the humble, broken stump of Jesse, the, the broken kingdom of Israel. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit to um, fulfill the Lord's commission to him, to fulfill his office of king. He fears the Lord in everything he does and reigns in righteousness, justice, and equity. And he will ultimately restore fully and beyond fully the peace of Eden. So praise God for our Messiah and for our King. Amen. Amen.